from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Oh, that was terrible. Let's do that over. Okay, well, I'll keep it in here so it doesn't matter. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. This is Michelle. <laughs> this is Mark. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dogs and cats, fishes and birds. It's good to have you here on Tiny House Podcast. We are back again. And um, what's been going on? It's been a while. You know, we're recording these shows now every three weeks? Every two, two to every three weeks. Two to three weeks. And so... A lot goes on in our lives between the time that we're in the studio. And so let's check in with Michelle and find out how her tiny build is going. Michelle, how's your tiny build going? It's all dry. It's all dry on the inside. It's all dry. So we got windows, doors, roof, walls, siding. uh, Yeah, completely dry. Completely, quote, unquote, the exterior is completely done. Siding, paint, the whole nine yards. And that that was to your benefit of building your walls before you erected them? Or um, siding them or painting them or something. What did yeah, you do? Yeah, well, one of the things I had to do was save a lot of weight because my 18 and a half foot long by 8 foot tiny house can only weigh 7,000 pounds. So I used blank T111, which is used for sheathing and siding. What's blank versus not blank? Um, T111 is typically known for its grooves. You have these vertical kind of grooves mm-hmm. in it. So blank T111 um, just doesn't have the grooves. Oh, interesting. So I'm doing a board and bat exterior design. Oh, nice. But yeah. I doubled up. So in other words, normally when you put sheathing on, then you would wrap it and then you would put siding on. I actually wrapped it and then put sheathing, which actually is the siding, which saves a ton of money, saves a ton of time, and oh, definitely yeah. saves a ton of weight. So when you... you, you so you built the walls before you stood them up. Correct. And when you built the walls before you stood them up, you wrapped them ahead of time? Correct. So what do you do with the joins? The like where, the, where one wall meets the other. Do you wrap it again once uh-huh. the walls are all together? Yeah, the oh, corners. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, it has been <coughs> quite the project. I work all week long in my normal corporate job, and then Friday night I head up, and then we build wow. all day Saturday and then all day Sunday, and then I jump in the car, and then I come back, and I've been doing that for... I'm tired, but it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> but you look good. Thank you, thank you. So it's very excited. It's time for electrical and plumbing. So this weekend we'll be wow. framing yeah. out the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, which is just kind of about a one-day project. Framing out the only room in the house, mm-hmm. and then um, starting on electrical this weekend, and we'll be doing finishing up electrical and plumbing next weekend. So wow. Then we're going to take a break, I think, probably late in April, and it'll get moved down to Oregon for the rest. Very, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. What, um, it, you know, we typically don't go into this level of detail on bills because Mark just, his eyes start to glaze when we talk about this kind of thing. <laughs> but this conversation is a great segue to our guest, who is a 13th generation builder. I cannot wait to get into those generations and see how far back that actually goes. <laughs> Were they building with teepees and logs or what? <laughs> maybe we'll they maybe second. they built the 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 Nina the Pinta exactly. Santa Maria. Good one. Yes. <laughs> Nina, 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 Nina Pinta y Santa Maria. Yeah. Uh, Tom Stanton. Tom with a H. Tom. Yeah. Tom. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I bet the H is silent. I think. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. 
Yeah. So, um, Tom, you have a tremendous number of things going on uh, around building. But first, let's start with this 13th generation builder thing. What is that all about? Well, I've, um, it, it's interesting you mentioned kind of the uh, the Niña de Pinta and la Santa Maria. I had a, a great, 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 somewhere along the way, grandfather come across on the Mayflower. And on the other side of the family, we've got a number of builders who were um, church builders out of the Stanton or Staunton. It's actually pronounced Stanton, even though it's got the U in it, uh, oh. Virginia, which may or may not have any kind of a tie to our namesake. But they started building the uh, classic one-room schoolhouse and church combos as they made their way south toward the Atlanta, Georgia area. So a lot of uh, schoolhouses and, and classic timber frame based at that point um, structures were made by my forefathers and their, as they say, uh, the, the ladies in the family bearing their children along the way. Wow. That's really fascinating. And did you did you do any genealogy to find all this out? Or is your family so proud of itself in a good way that they keep this stuff by oral tradition or something? Well, generally along the fireside, great-grandfathers. Great <laughs> While we're gumming our chicken dinners, you know, no, my, uh, my dad did a lot of extensive genealogy on one side, my grandfather on the other side of the family. So my dad was able to pass that along. And even though he's a, a professor and has been a vice president of a university and so has had a more um, academic life, he really kind of got to the point of about 18 working with his dad and um, and had been a builder and a well-accomplished builder interested in prefab houses, moved into academia. But my grandfather um, is a custom home builder out of Atlanta, and I did a lot of work with him in summers as a kid. Wow, that is such a cool background. You are perfect for tiny house, the tiny house movement. How did you get interested in the tiny house movement? Well, um, so on the one side of the family, my dad is a uh, is a builder, and so I was kind of daddy's little helper and, and working with him. And my mom is architecture nut, and so between the um, architectural Architecture Digest magazine sitting around the house and lots of others, plus the building side of it. And as we moved from college to college, we we you know basically did a lot of building. That gave me a lot of practical experience as an artist. I like to draw houses, and typically I'm a kind of an exterior guy. I'll, I like to draw houses and come up with fanciful designs. And, um, and so as I kind of got into a second career of sorts, um, basically being on the marketing creative side with advertising agencies and video production, I got more and more interested in sustainable living. And that led to timber framing. And then that led to looking at, well, if we reduce our carbon footprint by literally reducing the footprint, that's the best thing we can do to start. Mm -hmm. Green building is to build something smaller. And, um, and therefore, that's where I started to really find out about the tiny house movement about five or six years ago. You said you said that when you you said something about sustainability and being interested in that and moving towards stick built homes. What were you building before? We um, in the timber frame business, it's very typical to use the heavy timbers, which are basically the the skeleton. And unlike stick building, which used to be called balloon framing because it was lots of small pieces making the outer envelope, timber framing is that large, huge structural members. Unfortunately, if we go back to England and other places with the Tudor style homes you have a lot of brick and other things used as infill, and what you find is that infill can and typically is a, a huge thermal bridge, meaning the cold can make its way right through the timbers, wow. right through the brick infill, and uh, and houses were really cold. So today's houses are built with structural insulated panels or sips, so the timber frame is made and then they're wrapped with sips. Just so it turns out, you don't need the timber frames to build a sip-based house, and the more I looked at how 
the SIP construction, which is oriented strand board on one side and the other, so interior, exterior, and a you know, large piece of uh, foam in the middle. The more I looked at that, I felt like, well, geez, we could just build cabins, cottages, tiny houses, small dwellings out of this material, and that kind of led into a tiny house build, which then led into you know, wanting to be engaged with a full-time builder. So not only was I designing tiny houses, but I could actually help my customers get them built. Interesting. So f- <clears throat> so for our listeners, let's talk a little bit about the, um, again, let's circle back to the, the definition of timber framing. So timber framing is not the 16 on center um, sort of framing methodology that we commonly see. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It's it's generally large. It's, it's In some cases, it's called post and beam. Post and beam construction is actually the term used if we want to be real geeky and dorky about it is what's used when you use metal plates at the corners. Timber framing in its most classic sense uses joinery, much like uh, custom furniture, which uses a mortise and tin. With that and the uh, the pegs that go into it is really kind of harkens back to the original roots of structural building that we as humans engaged in when we first leaned trees together, lashed them together, and started affixing uh, branches as uh, rooftops. Wow. So it's kind of a different iteration of a log cabin. Yeah, right? log cabins and timber frame homes really kind of in the market appeal to the same type of folks because of that classic rustic appeal. Um, log cabins are oftentimes going to be stacked logs, and timber frames use the uh, the other side of that, which is to have right. corners and all the structural members, trusses, and other things um, really all kind of integrated together to provide for that basic framework. And in uh, different ways, then you can put either a sheathing on the outside, much like your house was done with a T111, um, or in this case, it would be the structural insulated panels in today's methodologies. You you must be um, shaking your head at some of the um, skills that people bring to tiny house builds, given how much you know, and even just like the way you talk about it, you sound like a master of this shit. Are, are you, when you, when you, <laughs> that's what his business card says. Like anything, it's been a learning experience. We, we definitely, you know, kind of started out with, you know, I was a creative guy. I'm a photographer, video maker, sketch a lot. And, um, and that led into 3d skills, which then enabled me to take what I had learned and done with my folks and figured out how to do. So it's like a lot of people, there's a learning experience. I think the, what right I shake my head at at times is what we see promoted on different blogs and Facebook pages when people are, you know, buying garden sheds and turning them into tiny houses. Yeah. I, I don't judgmentally say that's the wrong thing to do, but when we look at the tiny house movement today and say, okay, we want to live in a tiny house. We 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 want something smaller. Builders don't necessarily like smaller. People can't understand this conundrum of what do you mean cost per square foot is like seven bajillion dollars per square foot. That's ridiculous. Who would ever buy one like that? It's like it's a, it's a totally different paradigm, but it doesn't mean that they can't be built safely and with a sense of efficiency for the, the home as well as then an affordable uh, starting price and, and price for maintaining the house as well as keeping it insulated or at least air conditioned. Um, so there's a few things that I kind of get into on that side of it, which is my big geek side of the, the tiny house movement is the building code side. Hmm. It's probably something akin to when I'm building my house with my uh, boyfriend who has, you know, 30 plus years in framing and he's watching me doing something and he's just standing there staring at me and he's like, 
what are you doing? And I'm I'm getting it done, but it is not pretty. I am falling over, and the ladder hits the ground, and and it's probably something akin to that, where you're just like, wow, I don't know what you're doing, but you just want to help. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely um, the Buster Keaton like you know <laughs> silent movie comedy of errors um just just you know record it on a video speed it up just a little bit and add uh, and add the you know the the theme song from some old film to it and it, it definitely seems to be like you know you'd in the early days of tiny house construction people <laughs> used anything they could they lashed together sticks and twigs they bought sheds and they said here look that's my tiny house it shall be my domicile and that's the way the new pioneer of america was born you know uh, we you should know, get you Definitely a little of that, but it's the movement's taken a change, and the movement here is what I'm calling Tiny House 3.0. Is uh, if we back up and say Tiny House 1.0, Jay Schaefer, the Oprah Winfrey Show, uh, Tumbleweed coming out with uh, workshops and getting people engaged. You know, that's the 1.0 sort of stuff. 2.0 is when lots of professionals said, "Well, shoot, me too." I mean, if these guys are making money at this, I don't have to go on a job site. I can do this right. You know, geez, I'm tired of working with you know, all the code officials and all this other stuff, it, it boils it down, it can be this easy. And in 3.0, what we're looking at is, okay, people are asking this question. They say, I love what's going on. I'd like to make my home like this as well. Now, where can I park it? Where can I put it? And the answer, quite honestly, in most cases is, well, nowhere. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we can't build these in such a way that they can be placed legally somewhere. And that's the current 3.0 movement is on the build side. Um, making sure that they're safe and that they follow prescriptive standards because all those standards are there for a reason. Um, they're all there for safety. They're all there to protect people. And then if you look at the other side, it's like, okay, now that we've built this through you know, conventional means that you recognize meet or exceed what you would allow in your jurisdiction, why can't we place this somewhere? Let's talk with the zoning folks. Let's see what we can do to open the door for tiny houses as a legal dwelling. Fantastic. That's a great introduction to your... Um uh, the Housing Development Institute. Before before we get much further into that, though, I want to just put a bookmark. Um, that voice that you just used a few minutes ago, we should get him to say, you're listening to the Tiny House Podcast on the Big Blue Media Network <laughs> in that yeah, voice. In that radio voice. That would be fantastic. That would be very good. So maybe we'll do that after the show. Okay, cool. There we go. Sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So along those lines, the, the Tiny House movement is, is, we'll call it somewhat divided, and uh, if you don't want to go down this path, then we don't have to. But I'm going to bring it up anyways. So the tiny house movement is somewhat divided in their in their perception of how to accomplish what you're talking about. We have the NOAA group, um, which is kind of doing their thing. I was exposed to them when I came out there to the Georgia Tiny House Festival. Um, and then you have... And I, I, <laughs> Wait for somebody to go there. <laughs> and I believe I believe they're they're heavy into the ANSI code. Um, I believe that's their their flag waving. Um, it, they're waving the ANSI flag um, over here on the West Coast. We are super fortunate. I feel very fortunate to have Andrew Morrison living here in Oregon. He met with the legislators this week. Uh, we now have the movable tiny house uh, uh, discussions happening at the state level, um, which is very cool. But w and it's m more along the lines of the IRC, ICC kind of uh, direction or code. Um, and then there's all the rest of us that just kind of do whatever and wait and then wait and hope we'll be grandfathered in. Where do you um, where do you stand? Do you have your own uh, club? Well, kind of sort of in a way, but really the club is kind of the offshoot. If, if I could back up for just a moment and um, 
and, and just kind of lay a, a similar sort of foundation. It's, it's as if we take a look at this and we say, okay, there's what, what they refer to as outlaw shacks. These are, you know, dwellings that people have built in the backwoods. We've got a lot of those here in Alabama because we don't have a lot of code enforcement officials. You know, it isn't that the state doesn't have a building code. It's just that we don't have people in an enforcement role. So, so at some point, somebody is put in that role and they say, okay, prior to this dude coming in, we've had a lot of stuff built. Let's just grandfather it in. And so these are referred to as outlaw shacks. Hmm. And, uh, and a lot of tiny house building, not that it's done wrong or poorly, but let's just say the bulk of it, 98% of tiny houses to date, have largely been DIY efforts, and and I uphold that. I want DIY building. I want people to be able to build their own homes. I, I don't like how we've outmoded the fact that somebody can build their own home. Yeah, it's not rocket science stuff. You know, we should allow that. We should, especially in America, we should allow this type of thing to exist. Why do I say in America not that we're yeah. better than others? Not that, that others can't. We have a lot of resources here that other countries have just. They've run out of trees. They've run out of the the ability to have these this this wealth of natural resources, um, and so I think we have the potential to do that. So let's step it up. Say, okay, well, what kind of code could we use? Well, most people, and this is for Pacific West, which is predominantly a, a West Coast, but they what they do is they really are your ANSI guys. ANSI one one nine point five, which is American National Standards Institute, ANSI, has a prescriptive code base for prescriptive means built in it in advance they have a prescriptive code base for what people can build by so the rv code is an easy one to look at because it's kind of like we're building this to use like an rv but we kind of want to treat it like a home but we don't want it to look like this slug of an rv traveling down the road because they all look the same except for the nascar stickers on the side you know um <laughs> you know, how do you tell the difference you know they look all the same um architecturally that's where tiny houses really kind of strike a chord with what i believe is this ingrained human sense of a desire to live in a comfortable dwelling, in many cases to build your own dwelling, or especially with the tiny house movement upholding uh, a large percentage, a larger percentage than men in tiny house movement, of women who want to build their own homes, and therefore there's an enablement of people as embodied through women who want to build their own homes, and guys who maybe have come from a metropolitan background whose parents weren't so much into building like my folks were, who also want that skill. I think it's inherently human. Um, so we can say, yeah, you could apply the ANSI code to it, but what you start to look at is it's an RV. And my concern is if it's considered an RV, therefore recreational. And if you look at the way the RVIA has typically approached tiny houses, it's that they want to uphold the fact that they are recreational to the point where they say never to be used as a dwelling or domicile. Now, that's unfortunate because if we call our tiny houses, like Tumbleweed has done, they've rebranded themselves, Tumbleweed Tiny House RVs, they uphold the RV standard, which means if we allow tiny houses in the future to live somewhere, can we allow recreational vehicles, even if they uphold architectural standards, or by and large, are we allowing RVs to be used within um, within a, a municipal area? Um, and that's the challenge that we face if that's what we're doing is building RVs. The, does all this make sense, or am I just kind of no? It, to the it totally make it's totally making sense, and it's it's a it's the topical argument for the 3.0 tiny house movement as you described. So keep on going. All right, we'll keep on rocking. It's funny. It's funny how he how he goes back to his. It's funny how you go back to your southern drawl when you say "my folks." Yeah, it does. 
Oh, yeah, sometimes I can definitely hear my Southern come out, like right there, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my Southern comes out from time to time, right out the back pocket and to my lips, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that would give me the comfort, if you see what I'm saying, that it's not some sort of shout-out to somebody who hasn't paid their promotional fees. Can I get an amen from the audience here? Amen. Um, but if we if we do look at the, the ANSI code, and that's what places like Los Angeles are looking at is we want a code base. Code officials say, hold on, I, we got to have a code base. And and I can't tell you how upset it makes me to hear places that say we have a large homeless population and we in the tiny house movement want to uphold the fact that people should have homes, that they can be simply and affordably built. And the building official has waived the building code for homeless people. Oh, that's fantastic. Wave the building code. Now, hold on, hit the brakes. Something's wrong here. If the building official is saying one of two things, we've got a building code, but it's too arduous, and most of the stuff probably doesn't matter anyway, <laughs> uh, at least to these to these little shacks we want them to build. So let's just go ahead and waive the body of the code. Now we're saying we've got this code that most people can't apply to simplified dwellings. Are we saying that homeless people don't deserve to live in a safe home? I don't think so. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's right. I think that's unfortunate to think that we've developed a class of people who can live in something less than what everybody else uses. And for me, the transition from homelessness to housefulness, shall we say, it to me should be more defined as a matter of giving someone the the right, the you know the privilege to have a home. You know this this is a God-given privilege. You should be able to have a dwelling. You should be able to legally live in a dwelling. And to me, to think that what we're going to do is house the homeless to help them. Help them what? Become a new consumer to, to regain that type of life that ultimately has proven for so many people to, to not work? You know, I don't think that's that's what we want to say. or I don't think that's right. So I, I think it's unfortunate that we waive the body of the building code to allow for something simple to be built. And that's where we start to then look into something other than ANSI. And that's with the International Residential Code, IRC. As, uh, as put forth by the International Code Council, or ICC, it's like an alphabet soup of I can't remember where we are and all this. <laughs> it really um, is. But that's, that's what the Andrew Morrison has done, and he and I have gone back and forth uh, many times over the past few months. We have talked and engaged you know, behind the scenes on some of the same blog posts together. And, and the, the thing that Andrew has done is really introduce into the IRC Tiny House Code through Appendix V. And what tiny house code here does is it, it doesn't talk about tiny houses on wheels because the IRC standard does not include, by default, a, a chassis-based construction. That's either one of two things, recreational vehicles, manufactured housing. In both cases, largely factory-built, and manufactured housing must be factory-built. Therefore, you can't build your own home on a trailer. I've heard oh. good officials, well, you can't build your own home on a trailer. I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> it's just that your paradigm has excluded that as a method of building. We're proven every day by the, the scores or hundreds. I don't know how many now that the industry is, is, is popping out. Let's just call it 100 a day. You know, that, that's a huge number of tiny houses coming out of the industry on every given day that are proving over and over again that chassis-based construction is feasible and that it's something that people want. You know, architecturally sound homes that aren't necessarily tied to the ground, forcing you to resupply your your economy of the family should you have joblessness, should you lose a job or, or decide to change a job or decide to just go ahead and simplify your life. Many of us end up kind of sucking it up because we're stuck in the house that we're paying a mortgage on. We're underwater. We can't get out of it. And, and so it's, it's created this self-perpetuating cycle of 
I'll just stay where I am and make the most of it when we'd like to have the freedom and ability to move elsewhere if we so desire. So, Tom, um, Tom, why yeah. why did um, why did the manufacturer code require homes be built in a factory, the chassis built homes? Well, both the ANSI code uh, for RVs, the NFPA 1192, which is for mo- motorhomes and travel trailers. So motorhomes and travel trailers can be built with inch and a half thick walls. ANSI code is up to is is its minimum is a two by three, so two and a half inch thick walls, um, and those are factory built simply because that's the way that it's been the best for the manufactured industry of recreational vehicles to uphold it. So what they do for ANSI, and it applies to manufactured homes as well, what they do is they basically come in, they look at what the factory does, they make sure that the factory is using the standards that everything that they're doing is up to the code. They bless the factory to then continue to pop out as many of the units as they want to and that's when so they're granted the the right to apply the generally rvia seal got to it. the side of it got it manufactured housing is very similar what it did is it said about 1974 then in 76 the hud code was introduced and the hud code came out and said wait a minute we can't just let people live in anything we need to have a national standard so that homes domiciles and dwellings are built to a standard and they said 400 square foot is our place in the sand greater than 400 square foot or actually 400 or greater is something that can be a manufactured home but there too we bless we have this nationally built code it is administered at the state it is then through third-party inspectors authorizing factories to turn out manufactured houses and therefore only through a manufactured housing facility can a true manufactured home be be built and developed. Interesting. Um, and that and, means DIYers can't do it themselves. Backyard builders yeah. or professionals can't do it themselves. But you think just about that. can't jump in the Walmart game. Yeah. Well, think about that from a resource perspective, though. Think about that from a governmental resource perspective. It is so much easier yeah. and more efficient for them to hire one guy yeah, to go to a to single visit factory. The two or three factories, yeah. let's say, mm-hmm. for instance, in the state of Oregon, <clears throat> and say, okay, I, I see this floor plan i see the the model in front of me sure go ahead build ten thousand of these and i'll see you in you know next year exactly um mm-hmm. as opposed so i think it becomes down to a uh, uh in that case i mean it, it's a smart decision when you think about it from that perspective as far well, as governmental yeah. resources well and for, from the the builder standpoint too because not everyone can erect a factory and crank these things out and if you're wanting to do it by yourself like tom is saying in order to meet the code you have to do it in a factory which sucks because not every well, go ahead. Tom. Yeah, and RVIA has has made, and so I, I I like what RVIA does. I like the fact that they're they're lobbying for the rights of the recreational industry to not necessarily have so much government oversight. What was unfortunate was talking with the person in charge of their uh, certification program, and he said, "Well, we really don't want to let any more. We've we've decided not to let any more tiny house builders in for now." And I said, "Oh, really? Explain that to me." He said, "Well, they just don't have enough units in production. Like when we go to blah 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 Illinois." And, get, and that's a real place, by the way. And somewhere there's a guy dressed up like Dracula, and he goes, yes, I do say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and has a wicked laugh like that. And you're like, oh, dude, come on, man, you're creeping me out. But, uh, but seriously, that's what he said. He said, we can see 30 units side by side. We can take a look at every single phase of their operations. We can look at their trailers. We can look at how they're welded. We can look at how the frames are put on and attached. We can look at how they're framing, what pieces they're using, and all this. We go to a tiny house builders, 
we're just seeing three of them at a time if we're lucky and that's not enough for us to bless the whole process okay that's a realistic standpoint now what Pacific West did is Pacific West is also if you look up the ANSI 1195 you'll find Chuck Ballard from Pacific West right at the top of the list when you look at the canvas so these are the participating members and industry professionals his name's right at the top of the list so Pacific West said wait a minute we can apply the same thing we do for factories to DIY builds because Chuck and his company really wanted to do what's right by people and help them build to the prescriptive standards, understand how the, what the code says, why the code says it, how you can do this, and ultimately look at it over the shoulder, look at it, and say, yeah, man, you did that right. You know, Put it on the list, check it off, and help you get that type of you know, um, certification so you can actually have a sealed and certified. Um, NOAA now, NOAA doesn't follow specifically ANSI. Um, NOAA built what they call the NOAA standard, and this is where the bone of contention comes in, is that it isn't a singular specific standard, but an amalgam of best practices as put together through the American Tiny House Association. Builders participated, DIYers participated, they looked at the ANSI code, they looked at IRC, and they said, what if we just kind of baked all this in together, and NOAA came along and said, hey, I think that's great, and you know what we can do? We can help look at that over the shoulder. We can do video recorded uh, inspections. We can take a look at it. We become, you know, the, the the inspectors. You with your cell phone are just the eyes and ears of us. You move us around. We take a look at it. We take pictures. We tell you what you need to do. And when you pass through this particular gate, you can move forward with the rest of it. And and that's what NOAA really does. Wait um, a minute, hey Tom, that sounds pretty yeah. reasonable to me. Where's the where's the, oh, the where's the conflict? Michelle's over here got a wry, a wry smile on her face. She wants to know where the bone is. Exactly. No, I yeah, know so I know where the conflict lies. Well, lay it out. I know where What's the conflict Because that sounds like a pretty good deal. Go ahead, because there's, there's a popular sense of what is the conflict, and then there's the what really is when we start to look at the numbers and we start to look at the codes, and then there's what we're trying to do, which is, is make that thing go away simply so we can have somebody else out there helping bless tiny houses. Make so what thing go away? Noah? No, 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 not not Noah. As a matter of fact, I'd like to see more inspection companies come along. What I'd like to do is say, let's not create a code base. Let's not look at best practices as a code base unless those best practices are backed up with codes. Oh. And for my part, what we're doing through this thing we've created called the Tiny House Compliance Consortium, which is just a small group right now of people. We want to make it more and more inclusive of, of the top tiny house pros, those who are doing it, what, you know, basically building by code. What are the referential codes for every single thing you're going to inspect? Let's do as much as possible, if not 98%. Why 98%? Because 2% probably aligns to the chassis, which IRC doesn't handle. So if we look at what you can do through a DOT-based manufacturer, one that's blessed for creating through the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, another you know big acronym <laughs> there, uh, what they say is is a blessed facility for creating trailers, give it a, a real VIN number, purpose-built tiny house trailer and then build the structure to IRC standards as holy as possible and where and that's WHO not H-O-L-Y <laughs> <laughs> but let's look at what we could do there and uh, and basically take that and say that's the body of the code but let's also lean on the new tiny house appendix because what that really tackles is small spaces design that has been rather outmoded by the body of the IRC 36 inch stairwell, seven right. foot at the top of it that you have to have as a ceiling height, 36 by 36 square at each landing and at the foot of the stairs and at the top of the stairs with seven foot height. 
ceiling height. Those those things make any type of tiny house into a two-story tiny house, and go. then is it really tiny anymore? And so that's what the new appendix does is address all of those issues, most of which and almost all of which came out of the ANSI code as it's worked in that industry, and it hasn't created death by default. It instead has created like a, a passable um, offset to life safety that otherwise in a larger house requires more big house standards. And so that's what's been included as designers. We think that's fantastic that that code could be there if it's accepted and adopted by the municipalities as part of the IRC as applicable when you build a tiny house in that particular municipality. So, Tom, where where do you think... So we're getting really deep into the numbers and the... the it's all up in the geek world now. Can I, and yeah. can I give you the dumbed-down version? Well, no, no, what I want to know from Tom is what do you... Where do you see this shaking out for, for the DIYer who just really wants to build a tiny house, wants to do it legally, and doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't have the time to wade into everything that you're describing here? Where do you see this shaking out? Well, if we take the, the IRC, which at its spine is about uh, as thick as a two by four, it's about an inch and a half thick. Mm-hmm. And we look at that, there's a lot of stuff in there here. I'll, I'll use the expletives you gave us. Okay. There's a lot of shit in there we don't have to even look at. You know, <laughs> um, I'm not digging no foundations. I ain't digging no footers. I'm not putting up deck railing. I ain't doing this and that. Okay, right. So if we boil it down, sounds like which is what the Alice's restaurant. do, the uh, say what? Sounds like you're the guy from Alice's Restaurant. <laughs> he's, he's just, you're just this unusual blend of like technical construction know-how and a whole lot of fun. <laughs> uh, how those blend together? I, I know. know. Oil and water. I asked my wife. She's put up with me for thirty years. I, you know, only she can tell you what the secret is. It's probably earplugs. <laughs> But the um, yeah, so how does this all shake out if we if we simplify the code and there's there's a few things that we really need to look at. And again, I want it referential. I want to know that I can see that what does the code say here? It says to use this type of hurricane strap in these locations. Okay, or or better meet or exceed the code. Great. Give me that code that I can open up my big IRC right to that page. That sounds bad, doesn't it? I'm going to open up my big IRC. Um, <laughs> crack open that code book and look at There's it no and pictures. interpret the code. I might want to do something different. Now, this happens in typical construction all the time. If you're a DIYer, man, if we're not careful, if we are not real careful, what we have the potential to do right now, again, this is why I've kind of come forward and said, hey, listen, we need to get a bunch of us together. We want to build it right. We want to know that we're building it right. We want to prove to code officials that we're building it right. We want to show them referentially what we're using from the IRC. We want to record these videos in such a way that they can look at it and have absolute sense of confidence and proof that it was built right. And that's what the two standards can do today. The uh, Not the two standards, but the two certification groups that do DIY builds, Pacific West and NOAA is come in there and say, I can see the records, I can see the proof, this becomes something that is admissible in court if there's a need for it. And if I tore the walls apart, which code officials say, if I can't see it, I can't inspect it, mm-hmm. you don't have to tear my tiny house apart to look at how that how it was built in the walls. I you know, see. That record of proof is there. I see. So, so it's so, kind of like hiring a tax guy to do your taxes, or amen. kind of like using software to do your taxes. I don't know the tax code. I've right. never read the tax code. Right. So the tax code is actually, or the 
the website or the software is actually going to tell me, this is what you, did you do this? Yep, I did this. Okay, click next kind of yep. a thing. Show a picture. But to yeah. dumb down, to, to answer your earlier question or to dumb it down a little bit more, however, there <coughs> are... Um, put it in your language you can understand, Perry. No, not his. <laughs> not his. I'm just saying that there are people that are not appreciative of Noah's efforts given the amount of investment they have made into becoming RVIA certified and to the amount of efforts they have made into um, addressing directly the government's oversight. Why are, why are people uncomfortable or not, not appreciating that investment? It seems like the NOAA, I, I guess the, you both, Tom, you and Michelle, kind of circumvented in a very, uh, very a subtle way, very elegant, um, the question of where's the beef in, in NOAA? Why is, why is NOAA this seemingly, in my listening, a pariah in this community? What have they done wrong? What, have, what is it? You pay ahead, money, and uh, um, this is the dumbed-down version. I'm going to play devil's advocate. You get a NOAA sticker on the side of your tiny house. What does that mean to the government official? What does that mean to the Department of Transportation? What does that mean to a building inspector? So they haven't done – the NOAA people haven't done the work with those three groups that you mentioned to, to put the credibility behind the sticker? Well, they have. They know they again. So it's uh, it's kind of like you file your taxes. The, the the website tells you this is how you file your taxes, and then you go to court and or you get audited or something. You say, well, well, the software told me that this is what I'm supposed to do, right? I think the perception is that Noah's done their homework and they're going to tell you what to do. But when it comes down to you actually standing in front of the quote unquote authorities, I don't know that their sticker necessarily. Um, will will back you we'll up. Will defend you. We'll but defend I, I, you. So I thought I that's what. So that's my question. Did did Noah not do that work so that when the sticker does go to court with you, it does defend you, or have they not done the work? Tom, you want to answer that one? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just be straight up, and and um, I I have our facility has engaged both Pacific West and Noah as certification agencies that work on our behalf. What we do, and I'm telling you why we do this, because what we're developing through the Institute is an open source model that others can look at and say, hmm, now here, I'll use my good old boy for a minute. Damn, that shit works real good. Maybe <laughs> we ought to do that here. How much does it cost to get this here um, certification? Now I've got bunny ears flying in the air on that one. I even I even squatted down a little bit and I said certification. Um, and that was so I wouldn't fall over. Uh, <laughs> yeehaw. Um, we could all, listen, I, I want to be even to everybody. I'm going to put it in a New York accent. Now look here, why do I got to do that? I asked myself, I said to myself, self, why do I got to have the certification? You know what myself said back? said, dude. You got to do that. Why? Because you want somebody <laughs> looking over your shoulder, man. You got to have that. If you don't, man, you might lose something. You might leave some, something behind. Shoot, doctor leaves stuff inside of patients all the time. <laughs> you want to make sure you've done right. Am I lying? Stop me if I'm lying, bro. You understand? Damn. You know? <laughs> but, okay, but, but for reals. It's like right, we have four guests. Reals, if we break like it down to its simplest form. <laughs> having somebody look over your shoulder. Now, I want to get back to Michelle's point for a moment. So we use both NOAA and Pacific West. NOAA, the folks there are friends of mine. I've sat with them in meetings. I've, I've attended some of their weekly meetings. I know Andrew Bennett personally. He and I talk to each other on the phone at least once a week, as well as other builders as well. But I think they're, they're great people. I think their hearts are in, in the right place. 
And, and for what it's worth, they all have a faith-based center, which is why the name NOAA isn't just a clever acronym. Oh. It's probably started its life as an acronym that then became nicely massaged into the National Organization of Alternative Housing. Mm. Right? I think that's, that's where it started. So let's just say that we have the right people with the right frame of mind. RVIA, to the best of my knowledge, because I have looked, there isn't a class you can go to at ANZI or a certification certification course you can you can take or even an online certification class that you can take to give yourself a level of certification as a third party inspector of the ANSI 119.5 or the ANSI 1192 which is their parallel and complement to the NFPA 1192 for motorhomes and and travel trailers so there's nobody out there certifying the certifiers now RBIA may say hold on a minute Tom over there, he uses those cute voices, but the guy's full of shit, all right? <laughs> they might say that, and, they may, and they're probably right in most cases, but here as well, if they are having – this, it's called you know, train the trainer. If they have a group that trains the trainer to then train other certification agents, they basically have created an industry uh, – it's an industry-supported in-house training methodology against the code book. Now, why would that be important? Because there's some longevity of knowledge and, and passing of knowledge that can occur from one inspector to another. For good or bad, that knowledge gets passed along. Let's say for good. People know the code because they've got people they can lean on to help them interpret it. What we could say bad. Man, I always let people slide here because it really doesn't matter anyway. Okay, whoa, that stuff is bound to happen in the real world. So we can say, what about Pacific West? Pacific West, Chuck Ballard has been instrumental as a partner, as part of the canvas, and has spent a lot of his life, a good part of his adult life, helping create the code, the ANSI 1195, and continue to go through the review cycles with it and carry it forward through his own company. So again, here too is a guy who's deeply involved and invested in the code body, knows it probably better than anybody in the whole world, and then has a company that goes out and certifies tiny houses. He is largely, for the uh, recreational side as the inspector, he's largely their primary inspector. When it comes to Alex, who is the guy working on the tiny house side, he has the benefit, Alex, of being trained by uh, Chuck Ballard over here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question could be, what about Noah? Who has trained Noah? And that's a very good question because Noah not only isn't following the ANSI code explicitly and only, but has created or borrowed from this amalgam of other codes and handily put them together in something that actually meets the ANSI code, exceeds the ANSI code, and the place that they get beat up most often, the pariah that's out there, is that they're beat up by, in many cases, folks who want to uphold the industry against a manufactured housing-like standard, which isn't a bad thing inherently, unless part of that entire thing, and there are not folks answering these questions, are you trying to run the DIYers out of the business? Right. Are you trying to uphold that there will one day just like an animal farm, right. there will be a few yeah. who rise to the top, yeah. a few who have the numbers, a few who have the money to basically buy their way into a Walmart level of, of push everybody else out of business right. and crush the DIY belts and crush the backyard builder who might have been doing this for 50 years of his life. So, and so that's who, the question I'd like to see answered. So who, and even so, the IRC, I, I'm going to take it on home one more time. Even the IRC appendix, which only handles tiny houses on foundation, there might be an exclusion that you can go to and beg and borrow and ask for permission if I build it under your noses and it never leaves this county. And oh, by the way, I build it here on a chassis and it's gonna move right over there where I park it permanently. Would you come and take a look at it and allow the chassis? Then they might say yes to it, but by and large, what the code will do here is, is 
usher in and we're all touting that it's awesome and it's great. But we're touting in that there are structural standards that have been relieved from larger, actually not structural, but just spatial standards that have been relieved from the body of the code being so big, big house standards that don't bake well into a tiny house. And all we've done is address spatial concerns, which is great. Some of them are safety concerns, egress from a, from a sleeping area that can also be allowed in a tiny house less than 400 square foot as a sleeping loft or sleeping quarters. That's a great thing for safety. Those are awesome things. But what they're not doing is addressing what could outmode the tiny house industry. And that's that if we don't develop a code base, if we don't make it as stringent as the IRC, if we don't apply to it the Dade County high wind uh, sort of things that they do to apply for hurricane straps and clips, if we don't look at California, if we don't look at Montana for snow loads, and look at all these things and say, can we make an architecturally attractive model that is livable, bigger than two by three based walls, bigger than R5 insulation in the walls, roof and floor. If we don't have a standard that we can apply for that, we're really just starting to try to make our own tiny houses that are really more like travel trailers and therefore considered recreational only. And a tiny house in and of itself, an admission through the names of companies who have said tiny house RV, is that they aren't supposed to be or intended for use as dwellings. And a lot of us out there, sounds like Michelle included, would like to prove that wrong. So I can build my house. I can do it right. And I want this to be my home. Tell me why that's not right in America today. So, Tom, we got we to gotta wrap up. But I just want to, with all that you just said, I want to get down to the bare no, knuckles here around the the what sounds like is most dear to your heart and mine and probably Michelle's, which is, permitting DIYers to continue to build homes as opposed to the unfortunate eventual collapse of a robust market to just a few players who have the authority to build these things. So which which parties are supporting which outcome? Uh, which Say that one more time. So, so there's, there's, two, which... there's two outcomes potentially. And one yes. is... A, a code body that allows individuals to build their house that are it, it build their tiny house that's safe and meets all the code and all that. And then the other outcome is, oh no, individual DIYers are out. You have to buy them by the from these three play big players and the big players either either intentionally or not arranged it that way so that the code resulted in that result. So which which mm-hmm. which um, initiatives are supporting which outcome? Well, NOAA and Pacific West, uh, Pacific West using the ANSI code, NOAA using what uh, what we're hoping will become even more aligned with the IRC, is that they, they are supporting DIY builds and basically the method that they're using, and especially if we had a unified code base that, that professionals, therefore Canvas industry professionals agreed was, the minimum code base, if if builders were to align themselves to build with that, whether a DIY or even a professional, then we have a means by which the inspection parties can come in and just make sure that there's confirmation to a specific code base, there's compliance against that code base, and they can show statistically through measurable data collection throughout the process, both photographic records, video records, and data put into a spreadsheet, which items and materials were used in what portions of the home that were necessary to meet minimum requirements. So both NOAA and Pacific West uphold that sort of standard. The RVIA continues to move forward with that tiny houses are a form of recreational vehicle if built by an RVI member or manufacturer. 
and therefore can be used for recreational purposes only, the same under the park model standard if it's one of the park model homes. Um, and, and then the industry associations, as I see them, is tiny house industry association has the potential to be really that galvanizing force on the builder side and, and therefore the commercial side of the industry. My goal and my hope is to continue to uphold the fact that DIYers can and should be able to use the standard methods and, and prescribed standards to be able to build their own homes. I'd love to see the THIA step up and help foster something that, that aligns with that code as Andrew Morrison put together for IRC and then say these are the standards, this is what we would, would govern against and certification bodies can latch onto that and, and populate more freely. I don't mean cost being free, but at least being out there to be able to be easily found, easily pulled into a build for DIYers. If we go to the IRC, IRC will eventually be adopted through its appendix in a lot of areas, and therefore we'll find that some areas are very tiny house friendly. We plan to do that in this little town that we live in here is to make them tiny house friendly, but we aren't gonna say you can just bring any thing that you've built. We want to make sure that the houses are safety for their occupants. We want to make sure that they're safety, uh, safely built for their nearest neighbors. And I think that that type of model is something LA through the Latch Initiative is looking to do as well as how can we allow tiny houses as accessory dwelling units in pocket neighborhoods and communities under what minimum standard? And ANSI is the closest, but ANSI is recreational. If HUD jumps in this game, it's likely that they would or they could. If HUD housing urban, urban development jumps in this game, since they oversee the manufactured home standard, we could see the whole thing turned upside down and the tiny house movement is the coffee table book of the future. It had its life, it was awesome. These are some of the coolest examples of tiny houses and you can go to your local junkyard and you can see them rotting away day by day. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to end it there. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. We're definitely gonna have to have you back. Um, that was so awesome and there's a lot going on in this segment of the movement so we definitely need to, we wanna be on top of that. Uh, so, um, awesome. thank you all for your time. Yeah, sure. Uh, hang on there, Tom. Don't go anywhere. So, um, are we, do we have a, a review? To, no, we don't. Okay. Yeah. So there's no review to read. And next week we're going to be talking with who? Why Another am I rushing? Another fantastic rushing. guest. Another fantastic guest. Okay. Uh, I have it here somewhere. My computer's messing up. Uh, Mark Frederick with Big Heart Tiny Houses. Big Heart Tiny Houses. And while we don't have a review to read, we do want to encourage our listeners, go subscribe to us on iTunes and, uh, Check us fresh out weekly. Yes, and leave us a review. And uh, when we get more reviews coming in, we'll read them on the air. Absolutely. All right, uh, Tiny Housers, thank you so much for listening in on this yet another great episode. See ya. Be Bye. careful out there. See ya. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>